0: Another key point is that Archegas, as I mentioned, was classified as a family office, which is also less regulated than a hedge fund as well. Overall, I would say an ETF is much more regulated than a strategy that Archegas took on.
1: Welcome to Views from the Desk. A special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. The Archegos blow-up has thrown caution to the wind on alternative investing. In today's episode, Alfred Lee and your host, Mark Rays examine the reasons behind this bust and explain why ETFs act as a more secure and transparent investment solution. In the same vein, they discuss the rise of the Special Purpose Acquisition Company, or SPAC, ETFs and why it's still early days to consider them for client portfolios. Before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca.
2: Hello, and welcome to our BMO Global Asset Management weekly ETF call, where we're joined by our team of experts. I'm your host, Mark Rays, and head of product for BMO Game Canada, covering ETFs and funds. We're joined today by just 1 p.m., Alfred Lee, uh, who's primarily responsible for fixed income and preferred share ETFs. Well, of course, he does have a lot of insight on the equity markets as well. And let's get started we should start with the big market news this week, which of course was the Archegas blow-up. Can you give us the background on this event and how it impacts markets? Uh, For those advisors that are increasingly interested in alternatives, what are some of the things to watch out for in this space and how to alt compare to ETFs? Thanks.
0: Sure. So that's a good question. I think that the whole Arkadius event was—it was uh, definitely well covered by financial media, but I don't know how well covered it was by the broader media. So um, I'll, I'll summarize it quickly. But um, Arkadius uh, essentially operates as a family office, and, and why this is important is because, as a family office, under the Dodd Frank Carved Rule, uh, they're essentially less regulated than, let's say, a traditional hedge fund. So because they offer, uh, you know, no investment advice. They only serve one family. Uh, They qualify under that uh, Dodd-Frank carve-out rule. So another key part of the story is that they leveraged up their exposure to stocks uh, through a total return swap. Um, Why this is important is because that essentially allowed them to, um, you know, um, skate around a lot of regulatory uh, reporting, um, such as, you know, having to disclose their holdings uh, through traditional 13F filing report. Um, so that's necessary if they hold more than 100 million of the company's stock. Um, the other thing they avoided having to do was that uh, having exposure to more than 10% of the a, of a, uh, outstanding uh, company's outstanding stock, uh, they didn't have to report it because they got that exposure synthetically. Um, so because they use the total return swap uh, to get that leverage through a prime brokerage, uh, through a prime brokerage. Um, because it's not a transparent uh, investment structure, that essentially allowed them to you know, not have a lot of transparency. So other prime brokers likely didn't know how much exposure uh, they, had to the, to, they had to the stocks already, and they didn't know, you know who they had bilateral trades with. Um, so with reports that Archegos had, um, they managed about $10, $10 billion, which is pretty notable. Uh, but when you consider their leverage, uh, it was leveraged up to a $30 billion total exposure. So that's three times leverage. Um, so the stocks that they had exposure to was primarily a lot of Chinese media stocks, so things like you know, Baidu, Tencent. Uh, but the stock that really did them in and, and, and what was really the trigger event, was uh, Viacom. So uh, Viacom essentially saw their stock appreciate from $37 to $100 between you know, the start of the year to last week. And Viacom essentially tried to take advantage of this by issuing stock, trying to raise capital. Um, But, you know, what they noticed or what they found out was that, you know, having to having, you know, coming to the market with that new issue, there wasn't a whole lot of demand. So the market caught wind of this. uh, The stock dropped immediately. Likely, you know, short sellers latched on to this. So uh, Ortegas essentially was faced with margin calls right away. Uh, So they had to reduce their exposure to the total return swaps. Uh, the prime brokerages, which held the stocks on their behalf, essentially were forced to sell. So anybody that was involved in the market on Friday I uh, noticed that there was, you know, heavy block trading activity that uh, was occurring. So it, it, it essentially caused a lot of panic in the market uh, on Friday and over the weekend as a lot of people were trying to digest and figure out what was going on. So um, a lot of people essentially initially thought that it was going to, potentially have a lot of systemic risks similar to long-term capital management in uh, the late 90s. Um, But, you know, um, now at this point, we know that it was only limited to the, you know, six or seven banks that were involved, uh, that had their prime brokerages involved in in this whole fiasco. Uh, So those six six banks were essentially forced to liquidate their holdings. Uh, Two banks essentially, you know, took on most of the damage. Um, but you know we don't know the extent of the damage at this point. But it's essentially limited to uh, those two banks. We'll find out you know once they report their quarterly uh, earnings, uh, you know, very shortly. Uh, but again, it was limited to two to three banks. So uh, in terms of your question, in terms of alternatives, uh, one thing I will say is that alternatives is it's, it's a pretty broad um, you know classification when you look at things like uh, real estate funds. Uh, you know, long-short hedge funds that are, you know, net market, you know, uh, essentially market neutral. It's very different from a leveraged hedge fund. Um, And uh, another key point is that Arcadia, as I mentioned, was classified as a family office, which is also less regulated than a hedge fund as well. Uh, Comparing it to an ETF, an ETF is regulated by 81.102. So it's heavily regulated, similar to a mutual fund. Uh, Another benefit of an ETF is that it's transparent, transparent. you know, there's only a limitation in terms of leverage. Uh, there's a need for liquidity for the ETF to operate efficiently as well. Uh, so it'd be very tough for even an active ETF to, to implement this kind of strategy. So uh, overall, I would say an ETF is much more regulated than uh, a strategy that Artegas took on.
2: Great. Thanks for that recap, Alfred. And I think uh, with all the interest out there in all from alternative ETFs it is it is really key to really focus in on that transparency. Because I think uh, you know even for the banks that were that were backing Arcagas it seems to be an issue that they didn't necessarily know what the family office's total exposure was and perhaps that would have changed some of their decision making around uh, backing them. So transparency, a big one. We spent some time on leverage as well. Uh, just note, even within the liquid alts, which are now allowed uh, under the ETF regime, there are limits on on leverage, and you tie that together with transparency, really know what you're investing in is, is the key there. So as a follow-up, Alfred, um, you've, you've mentioned a couple of the the big banks down in the U.S. What is your view on the potential impact to our U.S. bank ETFs, ZBK for the unhedged and ZUB for the hedged Thanks.
0: So the impact is going to be very limited, um, if at all. Um, So I think the initial concern over the weekend was people were trying to figure out, you know, what was the damage done to the broader uh, financial markets? Because, you know, as we all know, um, you know, all the banks are are interconnected. Uh, But what we know at this point is that the impact was limited to uh, the prime brokerages of those banks that were involved. Um, So I looked through uh, the portfolio of ZBK and ZGB. Uh, this morning. Uh, so, one thing to point out is that you know ZBK is, is very well diversified. Uh, ZGB is just, you know essentially the same portfolio, but only with a currency hedge. Uh, a good portion of those portfolios uh, they are regional banks. Uh, so, keep in mind, regional banks, uh, their exposure to prime brokerages businesses are are essentially very limited, if at all. Um, when you look at the portfolio holdings. Uh, The only two companies that were involved in this whole uh, Artegas fiasco was Goldman and and Wells Fargo. So reportedly, uh, Goldman and Wells Fargo uh, caught wind of the news uh, pretty early on. So they unwound their positions ahead of the other banks that were involved. So uh, I looked at Goldman uh, this morning in terms of their performance between uh, Friday and Monday. It was down one and a half percent. Wells Fargo was around the same neighborhood as, as well. Um, and by this point, uh, between Friday and yesterday's close, uh, Goldman was already up 1.5%, uh, so were recovered by then. So the banks that got hit were Nomura. Uh, Nomura, Nomura was down uh, 15% from Friday to Monday. Uh, Credit Suisse also down 14%. Uh, so the, um, uh, what's reported is that these two banks either had a lot more exposure to these stocks or they took the longest to unwind or a combination of the two. Uh, but in terms of ZBK and ZUB, um, I think, you know, a lot of the stories or the talking points that we've been talking about over the last couple of months uh, st- still resonate with this trade. So, you know, when you talk about a steeper yield curve, uh, it's good for the banks, the regional banks, and specifically, which, you know, when you look at their, their lending business, uh, that's, a, that's a core part of their business. Um, we also talk about that exposure to that economic reopening trade, Um, So once we get the vaccine rollout progress even further, uh, there's going to be increasing demand for loans and mortgages, which is going to be good for U.S. banks in general. Uh, Another point we often talk about is, you know, that rotation into that value trade that we've been seeing, uh, you know, taking place in the last couple of months. Banks as a whole trade at a lower valuation than broader market right now. Uh, Keep in mind, you know, when you look at the market rally since last March, uh, initially the banks lagged the broader market until october or november so we still think there's a lot more upside for u.s banks uh, another key point i want to bring up quickly is um you know the, the u.s fed stress test reports um, the banks were initially told to pause their share buy uh, share buyback programs uh, at the onset of the pandemic but. They did uh, an emergency coronavirus stress test, and what they found was that the sector as a whole, uh, the risk-based capital ratios uh, were far better than, you know, the Fed's required minimum, even in most stress scenarios. So, uh, you know, one thing I'd point out is that a lot of people initially thought this was a very similar scenario to long-term capital management. Uh, keep in mind, long-term capital management' their leverage ratio was twenty-seven to one, whereas Arcagus was only three to one. So. Um, you know, I w- again, I would say the, the damage is limited to those banks that were involved, and more specifically to NOMERA and uh, credits with. I think the bigger story is still you know, those key points that we bring up with uh, U.S. banks.
2: Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. And yeah, it, it certainly does look like it's a big story, but uh, relatively contained. When we look at our ZBK ETF, uh, it's essentially flat uh, Week to date, and even looking back through the last week, there's not there's not any significant downward uh, price pressure on that. So, uh, an interesting story, uh, certainly a caution for all the advisors out there thinking around uh, alts and just understanding what you're investing in, and making sure that you've got transparency to the portfolio, which is one of the things that uh, really make ETFs appealing. Now, another area that keeps popping up uh, with advisor queries. Is uh, SPACs. Can you explain what they are and what's led to their, what I'm going to call, meteoric rise over the last stretch? And, you know, as, as these questions come in, it's, it's really how do I get access through an ETF? So, can you comment on how they may fit or not fit in with ETFs?
0: Thanks. Sure. So, this is a good question. I think, um, you know, to your point, SPACs have definitely had a meteoric rise in the last, you know, year and a half, two years. Uh, but essentially what they are, it's, it's essentially a blank chat company is, is what they're called. So operates very similar to a, an IPO or at least, you know, serves the same purpose. So it's just an alternative way for a company to list on an exchange. So the major difference between a SPAC and an IPO is that when you invest in the SPAC, you don't know what you're investing in ahead of time. So you essentially invest in the belief of the investment management team. So uh, the Capital that the investment management team raises, they essentially go out to look for um, private companies to take public. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, uh, it's an investment in the SPAC is an investment in the, ma- uh, the management team of that SPAC. Uh, there's been a whole, you know, different types of investors or different types of management teams invest, uh, you know, involved in the SPAC space. So there's been traditional investment managers such as uh, Pershing Square, which is. Bill ackman's firm churchill capital also in, involved in the space as well uh, but a lot of you know notable business people as well so richard Branson, uh, virgin atlantic he's involved in the space uh chamas uh, i'm gonna butcher his last name but pila hapatia he's become kind of the figurehead to the spac space so he's he's made his fame through you know facebook and also you know being involved in silicon valley uh most recently uh celebrities have, have become involved in the spac space as well so, so uh, Serena Williams reportedly has a SPAC as well, uh, and that, that's, you know, part of the reason why a lot of people think it is uh, getting speculative, uh, in addition to, you know, as you mentioned, the meteoric rise. Uh, but I think, you know, over the long term, SPACs are here to stay. Uh, the reason why they're popular is because when you look at the multiples that uh, SPACs are introduced at, um, you know, higher multiples than, than you know, traditional, traditional ways of taking the private company public, So it's much, much better for management. Um, Also, when you consider an IPO, it takes about, you know, two to three years for an IPO to uh, take place for the full process. A SPAC initially, well, SPAC essentially takes two to three months. uh, So it's much more efficient. Uh, So in terms of, you know, to your question, uh, a fit of the SPAC in an ETF, you know, in my opinion, I think it's a little bit of liquid. So it's really dependent, you know, the success, the, the amount of success that a manager is going to have in the SPAC space is really dependent on their allocation to, um, you know, how much allocation they're going to get in the primary market. Um, So even though the SPAC universe has gotten a whole lot bigger, um, an investment manager may have issues with scalability, right? So let's say, for example, if you're managing a $1 billion SPAC ETF, uh, essentially you will eventually run out of opportunities. So, you know, once you invest in, you know, the SPACs you want to invest in, um, you're going to have to start allocating capital to those lower quality backs. Um, so the ability to, you know, cap that fund, I think, is going to be very important. So, you know, as we all know, you know, the um, the importance of an ETF being open ended is, is very key uh, to the operational efficiencies of an ETF. Uh, also, you know, the management of of a SPAC ETF, it's it's, it's a very hands on process, right? It's a 24 uh, seven process where uh, you know, there's a lot of due diligence, due diligence involved. So anybody that manages a SPAC ETF essentially has to drop everything else that they're doing. So uh, right now there's, I think there's four or five different SPAC ETFs listed in the U.S. Uh, they're all about, you know, 70 to 150 million in, in assets. Uh, so they haven't reached that, you know, the size where they're going to have scalability issues yet. Uh, but again, it, it, I think it's going to be interesting to see once they hit $1 billion, uh, you know, whether they run into any issues uh, in terms of uh, allocation.
2: Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. I think I'll just back it up a little. Um, you know, when we talk about SPAC special uh, purchase acquisition vehicles, what they really are is just a, essentially a shell on the exchange, right? It's, it's a pile of cash that's looking to invest in something. Um, and generally, there's, there's a runway of, of getting you know, acquiring a private company and and bringing it public. Um, But I thought you hit it on the head by saying, you know, there's kind of limits to the availability of of good opportunities for these facts. And, you know, as they get more and more popular, you mentioned Serena Williams, you know, uh, Shaquille O'Neal has one. You know, there's lots of people that are getting into this space. So it's it's really going to depend on the opportunities that are uncovered. To bring these these private companies public, and of course, you know there's going to be some good ones, and there's going to be some wins, uh, but the flip side is there there's going to be some that are that are stretches, and so it's really going to depend individually on the company that's being brought to market, because all it is is a is a convenience move. You know, it's much easier to get approval to to have a shell company because, of course, all you've got is cash as opposed to bringing a private company public, because then there's going to be, you know, oversight analysis of the entire operations of the firm. And that's that's really the convenience that the uh, special purpose acquisition vehicle or SPAC offers. So it's an interesting space right now. Certainly a boom within a boom, if you think about um, markets. So I think a little bit of caution is, is warranted at this point. And when you think about how some of these things uh, might fit into ETFs, you know, as they, as they acquire these private companies or work with these private companies to go public, uh, some of them will start to fit in. Um, I think you are starting to see some uh, special purpose ETFs pop up uh, both north and south of the border to, to sort of take advantage of this trend. Uh, but just realize that not all SPACs are equal. Because, of course, they're all investing in
1: in different uh, private equity companies and, and trying to bring them public. You are listening to Views from the Desk, a weekly edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying today's discussion, we encourage you to check out our deep dive episodes where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM's product suite. Check out episode 64 in this same podcast series where we take a deeper look at the big six Canadian banks and whether they'll continue to earn strong earnings through 2021 and keep credit losses at a low, giving investors more reasons to buy into the sector for tax-efficient yields.
0: Let's switch
2: gears, Alfred. Um, I'd like to talk about preferred shares as well. We've been focused when we talked about fixed income about talking about the, the rise in the 10-year. Of course, the five-year BOC rate has been popping as well. What has that meant for preferred shares? And Of course, specifically our own ZPR ETF. Can you comment on the use that advisors are, have for preferred shares and ZPR in their portfolios?
0: Yeah, so um, you know, with preferred shares, it, it's definitely been a story about um, you know rising rates. So the five-year, uh, you know, we, we you know, as you mentioned, the we've talked a lot about the ten-year, but the five-year has been moving up uh, quite a bit as well. So a lot of renewed interest in preferred shares over the last couple of months. A lot of tailwinds uh, in the space or in the asset class as a whole as well. Um, so interest rates, I think, is just you know part of the story. Uh, so between January and February I would say interest rates were a key part of the move so when we look in the, the move in the five-year government of Canada in the months of January and February uh the five-year was up um, 51 basis points so it doesn't sound like a lot but when you consider you know where yields are right now that's a pretty significant move so uh, in March uh, the five year was up eight basis points or so so still you know very much a a big part of the uh, driver in terms of, uh, you know, the um, appreciation in in preferred share prices. Uh, But I think a a big part of the story in March was also, you know, as yields were rising, uh, a lot of investors were looking for ways to protect against, you know, duration risk. So a lot of people were rotating, you know, their core fixed income assets into areas like uh, preferred shares that offered, you know, um, some some, uh, protection against rising interest rates. But in March, it was also about you know a supply and demand story as well. So uh, year to date, there's been about 90 million in inflows to preferred share ETFs, and that's only preferred to uh, that's only preferred share ETFs. So that doesn't include things like mutual funds, uh, investors investing directly into preferred shares. Um, so as a whole, uh, what we've been seeing is that uh, a lot of preferred shares have been you know being redeemed both in the reset space and the perpetual space as well. Uh, so what we've been seeing is you know, an increase in demand, but a slow uh, drawdown in in terms of supply as well, which, you know, tends to be good for asset prices. Uh, In addition to that, I think a key part of the story has been, you know, the additional tier one capital bonds. Uh, So the AT1 bonds essentially, in my opinion, removes a lot of the downside risk of of, uh, of decreasing interest rates. So if interest rates were to fall at this point, at least for the banks and insurance companies, uh, you know, keep in mind a lot of these uh, banks and insurance company uh, preferred shares were issued at, you know, with a reset spread of 400 basis points to 600 basis points. So these these issues are going to be redeemed for sure. Uh, it's much cheaper to refinance these issues using, you know, 18-1 bonds. And keep in mind, you know, when a preferred share gets redeemed, it gets called back at par value of $25. So even if interest rates go back down, these issues are going to remain trading at par. So we can you know, in my opinion, I think if interest rates go back down, it's removed a lot of that downside risk uh, with falling interest rates. So, you know, we put out a trade idea uh, earlier this week, I think it was Monday, uh, which talked about, you know, taking your core fixed income position, uh, taking 10% of that allocation, putting it into preferred shares such as, you know, ZPR, which is our preferred share ETF, another 5% in ZTIF.F, which is, uh, our short-term TIPS ETF hedge back to the Canadian dollar, and then even adding in a, a 5% allocation to ZPAY, which is our uh, premium yield ETF. I think that's a good way to protect against you know, rising interest rates. Uh, it's also a good way to enhance the yield in your fixed-income portfolio as well.
2: Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. Certainly seeing some heightened interest in, in ZBR as, as the rates pop a bit. Uh, some people looking for some protection on uh, rising rates in the fixed income portfolios. And am going just ask you one last quick one before we go to the line. Um, our balance ETFs are now showing a two-year track record uh, and that'll be public as of the end of March. Can you give us a comment on how ZBAL is performing our balance 6040 ETF and as well, uh, how advisors are using these types of ETFs. with with clients?
0: Thanks. So ZBAL has uh, definitely been performing very well. So since inception on uh, February 15, 2019, uh, total return over that period has been about uh, 22%. So on an annualized basis, that's about 9.8%. Uh, so as we all know, over the last two years, you know the market's gone through some ups and downs, uh, most notably you know March of last year, when you know, during the onset of the whole um, coronavirus pandemic, Uh, When you compare that to the TSX, TSX over the same time period was up uh, 26.4% on a total return uh, basis. Uh, On an annualized basis, that's 11.7%. So, you know, when you compare the two, you're essentially getting 85% of the returns, but at two-thirds of the volatility. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, it's a 60-40 portfolio, but it includes – uh, you know, it's more than just two ETFs. It's uh, it's made up of nine different ETFs. So with the uh, Zval, you're getting uh, instant global diversification. You're getting exposure to not only uh, Canadian equities and Canadian bonds, but you're also getting exposure to you know U.S. equities, EFI equities, emerging markets. Uh, We've recently added U.S. mid caps and small caps as well. Um, so in terms of advisors, you know they've been using it as a one ticket solution. So as I mentioned. You know, you get instant diversification. Uh, the 60-40 portfolio is typically seen as, you know, your prototypical balance fund. Uh, so it's a good solution for advisors that want to use it for, you know, small accounts. Let's let's say RESPs or, or, you know, let's say smaller investors that are just getting started investing and don't have a whole lot of capital but want that diversification. Um, but the other way we see advisors using it is also in the core and explore strategy. So using... You know, ZBAL as a base portfolio, which is you know pretty well diversified already, but then adding in different exposures, so adding in satellite positions like you know our innovation ETF ZINN. Uh, this is a good way to you know complement ZBAL because you know the stocks in in ZINN are not not captured in traditional indices. So you know using Tesla as an example, most of the gains of Tesla were not you know captured by traditional indices until. Uh, december of last year so this is a good way to get that you know portfolio completion uh, on the fixed income side you could also add things like high yield uh but you know i think ZedVal, is it's a it's a good etf it gets you instant diversification when when consider it it's 20 basis points versus you know vanguards 25 basis points uh it's definitely an etf in my opinion that flies under the radar Great. Thanks for that update,
2: Alfred. Uh, seeing the longer-term track record start to build is, is certainly promising and positive for, for these balanced ETFs. And as you said, advisors are finding some, some use for them, so that's great to see as well. I want to thank Alfred for your time this morning. Some really great insights, some really topical, timely conversations today. It's great to be on top of what's going on. In the marketplace, and be able to relate that uh, to the ETF market and to trade ideas. Uh, so, thanks for your your insights and tips, and as well, thanks to everyone for listening in and joining the call today. Uh, we appreciate your time and have a great day. Thanks.
1: Thank you to Alfred Lee and Mark Rays for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, our experts recommended to enhance yields and protect against rising interest rates, substituting a portion of your fixed income allocation to the BMO Laddered Preferred Share Index ETF, ticker ZPR, along with the BMO Short-Term U.S. Tips Index ETF, ticker ZTIP. They also discussed BMO's balanced ETF, ticker ZBAL, as a one-ticket, well-diversified solution for RESPs or small accounts. For more information about the ETFs mentioned in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at BMOETFs.ca. That's BMOETFs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.